Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife. I'm Ashley Sanchez, here with Endow's Aaron Keller. And it's Bat Week. We're getting close to Halloween, so we want to talk about bats today. And we thought none other than our wildlife diversity biologist, Christy Klinger. She's out of our southern region joining us over the phone. We thought you'd be a great interview for this topic, Christy. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Awesome. Well, let's get right into it. Right now, if you drive down the streets, you see all the Halloween decorations out. You see a lot of bat decorations. So it seems like bats are known as kind of one of the creepy Halloween-type animals. Christy, would you? why do you think this is? Honestly, I think bats are, are misunderstood. It's, it's a group of animals that's, uh, they're hard to study. First of all, they're, they're nocturnal, so they're active at night. And on top of that, so we can't see them, but on top of that, they echolocate, and so they're communicating and foraging using ultrasonic high-frequency pulses that we can't hear because it's above the range of human hearing. So you've got creatures that are flying around at night, we can't see them and we can't hear them, and so that leads to some general misconceptions. It also doesn't help that, um, you know, Hollywood has sort of demonized bats over the years with their portrayal of them in movies and shows, and then, you know, there's, um, there certainly are diseases that have been associated and are associated with bats, uh, rabies in particular. Everybody thinks that every bat out there is rabid, which couldn't be further <laughs> from the truth. It's right. actually, the estimate is about a half of 1% of bats tend to have rabies at any given time. But those sick bats tend to succumb to it pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, there's just, there's a lot of old myths out there, like, bats are trying to get tangled in your hair. Oh, yeah. It's crazy because they're certainly not doing that. I, generally what's happening is you're a warm-blooded person outside at night. You attract insects. Usually you can't see them. You know, you swat at mosquitoes, things like that. Bats are flying around and they're eating the bugs that are around you. So I think that's probably how the bats getting tangled in your hair mess up. It's really the insects that are coming to you and like sucking your blood exactly. <laughs> and the yeah. bats are drawn to the insects so do bats suck blood well that's interesting so there's about 1200 species of bats worldwide and i'll also say that they're found on every continent and every part of the planet except the two polar regions and bats make up a quarter of all mammals on the earth which is astounding and out of that approximately 1200 species of bats there are actually three that do drink blood. They don't suck blood. Um, usually it's associated with cattle. There's none in the United States, I should say that. They occur in Mexico and South America. And these three species of vampire bats, they will make just a little cut on cattle or, or, or some other animal like that, and they sort of just lap at the, the blood that comes out. And the interesting thing is there's a protein that's been found in the saliva of these vampire bats that acts as an anticoagulant. And recently, it's being used to treat stroke victims. Oh, wow. So that's just one example. There's all these misconceptions. I think that's the, that's the biggest one, is that vampire bats, that all bats are like that, right? Yeah. No, couldn't be further. Only three out of 
1,200 species, and none of them occur here, and they're not seeking you out. They're not trying to suck your blood by any means. Yeah, yeah, and they don't turn into people and fly around <laughs> no. and wear capes. No, that's, purely <laughs> that's the one that I always thought was true. <laughs> I I actually, that I got the one part of, of what you were saying, Christy, is quarter, did you say a quarter of all mammals on Earth? Yeah, it's astounding. That's crazy. I never knew that. Again, that it's is. an animal that's active at night. We, most people are just not aware of them. That, and that's, again, back to what you had said, that's what creates so many misconceptions. There are these, some people may consider them creepy little animals flying around at night, and they're just so misunderstood because we don't know a lot about them. So That's, that's fascinating, and they're amazing, and I personally, I love them. And they come in all shapes and sizes, from the tiniest bat, it's called the bumblebee bat, it occurs in Cuba, all the way up to, to large um, fruit bats that occur in the tropics. We don't have any fruit bats or uh, here in the United States, but you know, they can have these fruit bats can have a three foot wingspan. So they come in all shapes and sizes. And that has to make your job extremely interesting. You're studying these creatures that aren't known to a lot of people and there's so many different types of them. Exactly. So in Nevada we have we've documented twenty three species of bats um, that occur in the state, which is pretty high as far as diversity goes, and they are difficult to study. We're learning more and more about them every year, and I keep going back to the fact that you can't see them and you can't hear them for the most part. They're active at night. makes them hard to study. So we're really playing catch-up when it comes to bats in general and knowing a lot about their natural history, their biology, um, their, their habitats, things like that. And I want to get back to the fact that you can't hear them in a little bit and kind of the tools you use, but um, I did want to touch on, since we talked about some of the misconceptions, is that bats are actually great for um, just the ecology, in the right word? Agriculture, everything. They have such a big impact. Oh, absolutely. So um, when it comes to bats being um, beneficial to the economy, um, it's been estimated that bats will save tens of billions of dollars, sometimes each year, because of the amount of insects that they consume every night, especially in agricultural areas. It's been estimated that $3.7 billion per year in reduced crop damage and pesticide use. So to put it into perspective, um, a, a single big brown bat has been known to be able to consume up to 600 insects in, a, in an hour. And large colonies of Mexican free-tail bats, such as the ones that occur in, in the state of Texas, they've been known to consume hundreds of tons of insects a year. And so it's, as far as wow. affecting the economy, if we, if we didn't have the bats we had, um, food would cost a lot more for us because of the added need for insecticides and, and just the, the, the crop insect reduction that bats provide is amazing. And there's a lot of uh, certain species of bats are really important pollinators also. Um, uh, mangoes, bananas, cashews, avocados, uh, all, all of those, um, all of those uh, food types are, are po pollinated in part by, by certain species of bats. And I'll tell you what, if you like tequila, without bats, you have a few less um, bottles of tequila because bats pollinate the agave plant, which is what tequila is made of. It is crazy just how much these these little animals impact impact yeah, everything. And there's so many different facts. If you could see my face, I'm like, 
Really? Yeah, he keeps giving really? me looks like, about cool. every like, sentence you say. Yeah. <laughs> I love so wildlife facts like that. So. Mm-hmm. It is really cool. And then I wanted to get back to how you said you can't hear them and you guys are kind of trying to catch up. And I remember I was out at Bat Blitz um, at East Walker River. I think it was like last month or two months ago. And um, you had equipment there where it was actually showing when the bats were calling or making their noises. Yeah, exactly. So we have, uh, so first of all, just a little background, bats navigate and they forage using echolocation where they emit calls or high-frequency sounds, and then they listen for the faint echoes to return. And by comparing the transmitted sounds to the returning echoes, the bats can measure the distance to a target, they can also determine the size of it, the shape of it, and sometimes even the texture of it. They can tell how far away it is and what direction it might be moving in. And so um, because they move around and they essentially see by using these echolocations, they, uh, and they're not audible. Most bats are not audible to, to humans. We can hear approximately from 20 hertz to up to 16 kilohertz. And bats typically echolocate between 12 kilohertz up to 200 kilohertz. So we, we just can't hear them. But one really neat way that we're able to study them is through bat detectors. And these devices are little handheld things that will record these echolocation um, calls that are being emitted by the bats. And then they um, produce an audible output so that we can hear them as humans. And they also will record this to um, to a, a a hard drive, if you will, and then we can we can analyze those calls later on, either in the field in real time or later on on the computer, and we can determine what species of bats are out there, even though we necessarily didn't see them and we didn't have them in hand. That's so cool. I remember just being really interested by that, and I can't believe that so many are around, but you can't hear them at all. You know, it's, I like to tell people that, um, you know, bats, they've, they've sort of cornered this niche ecological niche, if you will. It's occupied by birds during the day. So during the day, birds are out there. We can see them. We can hear them singing. And they're feeding mostly on insects. And at night, the bats are out there feeding on insects also, but we can't see or hear them. And the fact that they they navigate and echolocate using this ultrasonic sounds is actually pretty cool because, first of all, there's not a whole lot of other sounds in nature that are that high, so they don't have interference from other natural sounds. Um, and then... If we could hear bats, nobody would sleep at night because they're literally <laughs> screaming that we wow. just can't hear them. <laughs> so interesting. And the fact that they basically are like the birds and they're of all night. Around. Yeah, they're all around. Like imagine if it, if they did come out when it right. was like Right. So these acoustic bat detectors that I talked about, it's sort of like um, it's the equivalent of like bird watching except for bat listening. Cool. It's really cool. So, and then, so what is there – I know there's like some sort of isn't it an app that people can use that it'll locate or like hear the sound. You so can you can buy little you can buy software for it. I, I'm not sure if there's an actual app out there that oh, you okay. can that you can get. But there's there's several different companies that have been developing this technology, which has been really groundbreaking for bat biologists in the last two decades or so. Prior to the development of this technology. Um, we relied mostly on capturing bats, which is very hard to do. And so now we can capture bats and study them in that way, but we can also passively um, survey and learn about bats that are, that are present in different habitats using these bat detectors. That's cool. And then you guys do still go out and you do bat captures, correct, to gather data? 
Absolutely, yeah. And a good example of that is um, what you mentioned a little bit ago, and it's the Nevada Bat Blitz. Uh, the Nevada Bat Blitz is sort of coordinated by the Nevada Bat Working Group, which is a group of um, lots of different agency bat biologists and people that are interested in bats in general. And the Bat Blitz is an annual event. It's um, We try to locate it each year in a different place in the state where we're lacking data on bats, maybe occurrence data, or maybe there's other research needs. But it's a coordinated, intensive, week-long survey designed to sample the bat community in a specific area or habitat, and we use multiple methods. We, we capture bats using mist nets over water sources, and then we also deploy various acoustic detectors. And how do those mist nets work exactly? We may need to um, have you answer this, and then we'll go to break and then yeah, finish talking. Well, and then There's so might, much to talk about. I think we might post a photo of like what a mist net is, too. They're that so would be helpful, cool. yeah. yeah. A mist net, it's a, it's, it's a netting material. We, we, it's strung between two poles. It's a various lengths and various heights, and it's a fine gauge, um, almost like a monofilament net. And we usually stretch it over a confined water source, like a spring or some small pool that we can stretch the net over. And the idea is the bats know where water is. And every night when they come out, first thing, they come out to, to forage, they want to go get a drink. And they already know where the water sources are. And so they go right to those water sources to get a drink before they go start hunting. And they're not expecting there to be a suddenly a net stretched over their, their water source. So as they come in to get a drink, if we're lucky, they get caught in the nets. And so people will say, well, I thought bats can, I mean, when bats are echolocating and they have such, um, they can discern the tiniest little insect, they can, through echolocation, bats can, de- can detect things as fine as a human hair. So people say, well, if that's the case, then how come you're able to catch them in this nets? But the bottom line is we, we only catch a fraction of the bats that are out there flying around each night. And I like to say we're capturing bats that um, aren't paying attention mm-hmm. or they're just not that smart. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Poor bats. Well, uh, we it's so interesting, but we are out of time for the first half of the show. But let's get back into this right after this quick break. Well, if you enjoy listening to our podcast leave us a review on itunes and soundcloud for more information on hunting fishing boating and all things wildlife go to endow.org now back to the show Welcome back to Nevada Wild. We are joined by wildlife diversity biologist Christy Klinger out of our southern region. And Christy, right before the break, we were talking about our bat captures and how you capture the bats using mist nets. And we were talking a little bit about um, how the mist nets work. And then once the bats are captured, what? how does that work? What do you guys do with them? Well, we're looking for... Um basic demographic and, and biological data from these bats. So when we capture a bat, the first thing we'll do is we'll ID it. And we have bat keys that we use to go through to um, come up with a positive identification in hand. And then we determine its sex, the age, and its reproductive status. And depending on other research goals, we might collect various swabs or samples from the bats. Okay. And then that's where we get all of our bat data. Essentially, yes. Wow. So it is very important work that you guys are doing out there and at these bat blitzes. Is that just an annual one-time thing? The the bat blitz is an annual one-week coordinated event. There's always other 
that captures or bat studies that are going on throughout the state. It just depends on what programs we're working on, what research questions we're working on throughout in different regions of the state. But but the bat blitz is the one major um, get together where we we capture bats in, in an area where we don't have data or we're we're lacking data or we need updated data. Yeah, and so many agencies are out there too. Yeah, we get a lot of um, assistance from the federal agencies. Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, Bureau of Reclamation, Forest Service. It's, it's amazing the turnout that we get. And not only does it serve the purpose of um, filling some of our knowledge gaps regarding bats, it's also a training exercise for those people that maybe don't have um, as good of bat handling skills as others. And I should, I should point out that during these bat survey activities, the only people that are physically handling the bats are those that have had um, training and rabies pre-exposure vaccinations. And during the course of the surveys, when we are handling the bats, we're using protective equipment, latex gloves, uh, that sort of thing. Okay. And I know one of the things you're doing, you said you have swab the bats, and that is to test for, is that for the white-nose syndrome? That, that's in, in conjunction with white-nose syndrome. So white-nose syndrome is a disease that's affecting bats, and it was first detected in upstate New York during the winter of 2006-2007 when bat researchers who were doing hibernacular studies found hundreds and hundreds of dead bats outside of caves and mines. And what we've learned is that it's a fungus that had come over somehow from Europe. We're not sure how it got to the United States. But this fungus thrives in certain conditions in caves and mines where bats are hibernating, and it attaches itself to the bats, usually on the, the muzzle and on the elbows, and that's how it got its name, white nose syndrome, because it gave the bats a, a white fuzzy nose. And the fungus, unfortunately, uh, is it sort of is an irritant, and it causes the bats to arouse out of hibernation, because when they're hibernating during the winter time, they go into hibernation uh, all, bulked up, all bulked up with as much fat as they can because during hibernation they dramatically lower their metabolism so that they can make it through the winter months uh, until springtime when they can start feeding again. But in cases where white-nose syndrome is affecting bats, it's an irritant. It causes the bats to wake up early out of hibernation, out of that state of torpor, and when they do that, they very rapidly use up their fat reserves and they become dehydrated and they starve to death. So, and you said that's not in Nevada yet, but it is, it's been expanding, is that? Yeah, it has not been detected yet in Nevada. There's estimates that in the east and midwest that somewhere between five and seven million bats have died from this already, uh, which is just horrific. And there's been local population declines of 90% in some areas. So far, it's been detected in 33 states and seven Canadian provinces. For the longest time, bat researchers kind of thought and held on to the hope that this fungus that has very specific requirements as far as temperature and humidity, that it wouldn't be able to sort of get over the Rockies and, and that it also hopefully wouldn't be found in Nevada because we have a slightly drier climate. But it has it has jumped the Rockies. It's been found in Washington State, and now we're just sort of bracing ourselves for the inevitable when it might make it to Nevada. Oh no! And we did, earlier we talked about how important bats are. So, and right. The, the other thing with this is, so bats are they're a very um, long-lived species, and they have low reproductive rates. 
some bats can live as long as 30 years in the wild, and they only have one pup or one young per year. Most mm-hmm. bats, some bats have twins. but And so because they're so long-lived and they have such a low reproductive rate, when there are local declines in populations, it takes a long time for those numbers to rebound. Wow. I, that's so interesting hearing about um, their reproduction. Like I pictured, I don't know, Lots of just a ton of bats. I never <laughs> thought about them only having one pup. Well, here, here's another interesting works. reproduction fact. So most bats, especially the bats in Nevada, they, they tend, the males and females, they start to swarm together in the fall and they mate in the fall. But because the ones that hibernate have this challenge of now trying to make it through the winter months, um, the females, they have a reproductive strategy where they will either delay fertilization or delay implantation of the embryo until springtime. And that allows them to make it through the winter months without having to use some of their stored energy towards fetal development while they're hibernating. And then they time the birth for spring and summer when there's now a new abundance of insects. Wow. And most, um, most Nevada bat species, the, the, the weight of the baby when it's born is about 25% of the mother's body weight. So those of you women who have kids try to think about a quarter of your body a quarter of your body giving birth to a quarter of your body yes wow (laughs) uh well we've touched on the um white nose syndrome but for a more i guess we could say uplifting topic you guys found some awesome things at uh bat blitz including the spotted bat which is very rare isn't it it's definitely an uncommon bat, and for the longest time, there were experts that considered the spotted bat to be one of the rarest mammals in the United States. And we've learned a little bit more about the spotted bat over the last few decades, although there's so much we still don't know. Um, there's been so they're very difficult to catch in nets, and um, we're, we're just sort of catching up. In fact. I've been with the Department of Wildlife for 18 years, and prior to this summer, I could only think of one other spotted bat that we had captured as an agency, and that was back around the year 2000. But just this past summer alone, during two different bat capture events, one of them was the the bat blitz, we ended up capturing four spotted bats, which is like, um, yeah, so this is the holy grail of of, of bats for, for bat researchers. Wow. Why do you think, were these just areas you were in that maybe we hadn't studied before? Or why do you think so many in the last year? I think there's a couple reasons why. I can't really say why just in the last few years, except for um, what we know about spotted bats is that they tend to be late emergers. So they don't come out to forage until a little bit later after most other bat species. And when we're out trapping bats, we usually trap for um, two to four hours after sunset. So if they come out after that time, we'll miss them completely. Uh, spotted bats also tend to be more solitary. So you may have like 50 canyon bats foraging in a particular patch of habitat, and there may only be one spotted bat there. Um, and another reason I think we've been capturing spotted bats lately is because we've been starting to deploy what we call triple high mist nets, which is three nets stacked on top of each other that helps us reach higher into the airspace and higher into the canopy of habitats that we might be sampling. And the four spotted bats that we captured this year were, were captured in the second or third tier of these very high mist nets. So that's definitely probably a contributing factor to our recent success. Exactly. Well, it's pretty exciting when we do hear that you guys catch those. And 
I know we've posted a video and pictures, maybe not video, or yeah, no, we do have a spotted bat video. So we've posted videos and pictures on Facebook for anyone listening that wants to check it out. It's pretty cool. And and also about spotted bats that's pretty neat is that I mentioned earlier that for the most part, humans can't hear the echolocations of bats because it's above the range of our hearing, but there's a few exceptions, and one of them is the spotted bat. So if you know what to listen for, and if there's spotted bats out there, you can hear them, and it just sounds like some some clicking noises. Interesting. So it's like Ashley when she plays with her pen? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I like that, yeah. (laughs) I always click my pen. (laughs) I can't help it. Uh, That's so interesting, though. And for people who want to um, see bats... We have bat walks. I think we have some in Vegas. Yeah, and we have some in Reno. We'll try to post them on Facebook, too. Yeah, they're very popular, and I think it is just getting up close and kind of learning and the cool facts. It makes it really cool for families to come out and learn about bats. It's it's very educational, for sure. And, Christy, could people volunteer for bat captures? Uh, we do we do allow volunteers to come out. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we don't allow anybody who's not familiar with bats to handle them, but they can certainly observe what yeah, we're doing and help out with data collection and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Observing one of these bat captures would be really cool. Everyone talks about them around Halloween, bats. Are they actually more active this time of year? Uh, they're a little bit more active this time of year, and that's for a couple different reasons. As we're getting, as the summer's winding down and we're getting close to fall, we now have all the, the new the new pups, all the new babies that were born over the summer, late summer, that are now part of the population. We have, they tend to be more active because they're trying to eat as much as possible to bulk up, to get ready for hibernation, or the ones that migrate might be starting to move through. So we do tend to see sort of an uptick in numbers of bats around this time of year. I actually didn't know before today that their young were called pups. It's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to keep using that term now. Yeah. Um, Any advice for people? If I know last year, that was right around when I started, actually, last October. um, I followed David Catalano around. He's one of our diversity biologists, and he was getting calls. I think there was um, a senior living home that had some bats. I know the UNR Gymnasium had, yeah, there was bats living there. Do you have advice for people who might, they might come into their homes uh, is there anything they should do? Yeah, there's um, definitely, I mean, bats are really cool and they're awesome, but you don't want to be living with bats. And so if you <laughs> yeah. find yourself in a situation where you've got a bat in your house, it's probably a single bat that just managed to get in there somehow. And if that's the case, you can open up windows and doors and, um, you know, it will likely leave that night. If you have multiple bats in your house or in your attic, which is not as common out here in Nevada as say it is in like the, the Midwest where you hear about people with houses and barns with attics full of bats. But if you find that to be the case or you're facing a situation like that, there are pest control companies that are um, trained and approved to do bat exclusion work, and that should be done by professionals because um, you want to be able to – they'll be able to, to figure out how the bats are getting into the building or the house, and then they'll be able to – First, they need to exclude that opening so that the bats can exit, but they can't get back in, and then they'll seal that off. So it, it's not very common that that happens, but when it does, leave it to the experts. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, you gave us so much information. I think the takeaway from this, our bats are are great. They're awesome. awesome. And uh, it was great to have you over the phone, Christy. 
It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that does it for this week's Nevada Wild. again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife.